just pray and ask God to help us and help me particularly. Heavenly Father, we've been reminded that you are the God who speaks. You spoke in creation. The heavens declare your glory. You spoke finally through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your last and best word. And you still speak to us today about him and about yourself through your word. So help me to explain it clearly as I should. Help us to concentrate and understand it. And more than that, to put into practice what you say to us immediately and without hesitation. For your glory. Amen. Well, we live in an age, do we not, of information explosion. Uh, searching for facts, for example, for research, which was once a laborious process of trawling through libraries and books, which I remember when I was a student, is now available at the click of a computer mouse. The most popular search engine on the internet, as you all know, is Google. Did you know that Google is a misspelling of the word Google, G-O-O-G-O-O-L? It's a mathematical term, and it means one to the power of a hundred. That is one with a hundred zeros after it. Expressing the almost limitless information that can be accessed. However, despite all this information that is at our fingertips, there is one area in human knowledge that has not advanced over the years. The knowledge of God. Just for interest, I put Google on the search engine and put God in the search engine on Google. You know what I came up with? You probably can't read it on the screen. 600 million references. All about God. Yet, most people are still in the dark about God. Uh, Today, as we continue our series in the New Testament book of Acts, which we've entitled The Spreading Flame, we'll discover that even two millennia ago, this was still the case. In the city whose name is still renowned for the greatest thinkers and wisdom, the one true God is the unknown God. But this is about to change with the arrival in the city of a middle-aged Jew, small in stature, but large in intellect and courage. His name is Paul. And he's given the opportunity to address the intellectual elite of the city of Athens. His subject, and our subject today, is knowing the unknown God. So let's read together, first of all, Luke's account of his visit and his speech no doubt gleaned later from Paul himself, as he is alone in the city of Athens. Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. It really will help to have a Bible right in front of you uh, to check out what I'm saying and to follow where we're going this evening. Acts 17, verse 16, page 1113, if you have a pew Bible. While Paul was waiting for them, that's his colleagues, to join him, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, 
where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word for us to focus on this evening. Just to review, first of all, Athens was not on the itinerary of Paul's missionary journey. His plan, his calling by God, was 300 miles north in the province of Macedonia. In each of the cities he'd visited there, Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, his message about Jesus had been welcomed by many people. But then violent opposition had followed, provoked and orchestrated by his fellow Jews. After the third time of this happening, his friends, for his and their own good, decided it would be wise to get him out of the situation. And so they took him down to the coast, put him on a ship heading south for Athens. So when Paul finally disembarked from his ship at the port of Piraeus and made his way on foot five miles inland and entered the city of Athens, he discovered a city that was, in the words of one writer, in the late afternoon of her glory. Nonetheless, even living on the past, Athens was a great university centre. It was the place that the Romans sent their kids the final bilingual education. Sort of the Edinburgh of its day, if you will. Five centuries before Paul's arrival, the city-state of Athens had burst into prominence, if you know your ancient history. 
holding back against considerable odds the Persian army and navy, and then leading a flowering of Greek culture and life. Brilliant philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, to name but three, outstanding artists, magnificent sculptors, builders, created a world whose glories have never been surpassed and whose influence was felt right down the centuries, right through the European Renaissance, 14th to 17th century. Even in our own day, we still feel the influence because we live under democracy. A great Greek idea from Athens. So here's Paul, not planning to be there. He's waiting for his companions to rejoin him on this missionary journey. And Paul did what most people did in those days and still do in Athens. He wandered the streets looking at the magnificent buildings that filled the city, the remains of which can still be seen today, many of them. Crowned by the Parthenon, built on top of the Acropolis, Temples and statues, not just of stone and bronze, but of silver, gold and ivory, were everywhere. It was said that the gleaming spear point of the gold and ivory goddess Athene, the city's patron, was visible from 40 miles away. But notice as we come to our text, Paul's reaction as he wandered the streets. For here is no ordinary tourist. His reaction is not one of wonder, certainly not of delight. Whatever he might have admired in respect of artistic merit and beauty was overwhelmed by a far more painful emotion. Luke, the author of Acts, records Paul's response to idolatry, what he felt. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Verse 18, uh, 16. The word translated distressed is one of strong emotions. It's the word from which we get paroxysm. You want a slang expression. When Paul saw the idols, he had a fit. It's hard to translate accurately. Agony, anguish. And the reason for his reaction was not the buildings and statues themselves, but what they represented for each one of them was dedicated to some god or other. Apollo, Jupiter, Athena, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, Aesculapius, just to name a few of the whole pantheon, as the Greek word was, of gods that were worshipped in the city. Uh, one Roman satirist, who I think came a little later than this, commented that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. The population was around 10,000, and there were 30,000 statues to gods. So, why was Paul so upset by this? Because he saw all these objects of worship for what they were. They were idols, literally nothings. Man-made substitutes for the one true God who alone should be worshipped. Despite all their learning, despite all their religion, the people of Athens were ignorant about the one true God, what he was really like, and what he demanded of them. And in the face of such anguish, And provoked in such a way, Paul cannot remain silent. So notice, not only what he felt, but what he did. So, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. We've seen that Paul always went to the synagogue, first of all, to speak to his fellow Jews. But he didn't stick with them. He went out into the marketplace, engaging in discussion, especially with the resident philosophers, who were only too pleased to have a discussion and probably a good argument. Now, notice what Luke tells us about the Athenians' response to Paul. It was very mixed. We read, 
Some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? The word babbler is a derogatory term. The, the original Greek word means a bird who was a seed picker. Uh, it later came to mean someone who was a scrap merchant who made things out of discarded bits of other things. And they're saying about Paul, you know, he, he's just a guy who picks up bits of teaching from here and there and he's cobbled together some kind of new teaching or philosophy or religion. Others, however, were very confused. Verse 18. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They probably didn't understand. They probably thought Paul was talking about a new god called Jesus and his consort who was called Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. And Paul's teaching, out in the streets, it causes such a stir that it reaches the city council. Now, this is not like the Edinburgh City Council. It was known as the Areopagus, which probably means the hill of Ares, the god of war, or in Latin, Mars Hill. And it was called this because this was the original place where they used to meet, uh, down and under by the Parthenon. It did now become the name of the council itself. Its responsibilities were guardians of the city's morals, education and religion, and especially monitoring foreign cults, because everyone came to Athens. Interesting, the word Areopagus is the word used in modern Greek for the Greek Supreme Council, the Greek Supreme Court. And so when they hear about this, they ask Paul to come to one of their meetings and to explain what he's teaching. Now as we come to our subject, I want to just trace three simple steps here. How you get to know the unknown God. Not just them, but us. First of all, we notice in verses 19 to 21, seeking the truth about God. It's summarized in their request to Paul. Look again at what it says. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. They're interested in knowledge. They're characterized by the search for knowledge. And he's taken them down many avenues and produced many different ideas. And Paul has already been debating with them. And Luke tells us that he's been debating with two of the most prominent philosophers of the day. Okay, let's try and make this simple. And anyone who knows about this, don't criticize me at the door. But I'm going to try and make it really simple. I can see you're looking a bit glazed already. All right, there were two groups that were very prominent in those days. The Epicureans and the Stoics. All right? And the reason this is important is because although not many people go by those names today, what they believe and practice is pretty much the same as a lot of people today, maybe even some of us. Their beliefs are not unfamiliar. The Epicureans were named after their founder, who was called Epicurus, who died in 270 BC. Now, this is what they believed. Life was all there is, and so you should make the most of it. Seeking pleasure where you could find it, if it feels good, do it. And avoiding pain, if it feels bad, stay away from it. They were not atheists, but they believed that the gods, all the gods, were remote from human experience, were not at all interested in human beings at in the slightest. And at the worst, their belief system became an ex excuse for sensualism and self-indulgence. So we can summarize their philosophy as, enjoy life. Now, you don't need to look too far to find people like that today. Not sure about God and gods, and it's not very real and personal, but, you know, that's what life's about, isn't it? Go for pleasure, avoid pain. And it's not, you don't need to look far to find their rival group. There are these two rival groups, 
the other group were called the Stoics. And they weren't called Stoics because their founder was called Stoic. <laughs> they were called Stoics because they met under a covered porch, which was called in Greek a Stoa. Uh, and their founder was a man called Zeno. Zeno died in 265 BC. You know, it's a kind of battle of the beards, if you can see the picture. They said that life was filled with good and bad, and so you couldn't avoid it. So the only thing you could do was to grin and bear it. Hence our word stoicism, a person who's a stoic. And they placed extreme emphasis on human rationality and self-sufficiency. They were pantheistic. They believed that God was everywhere and in everything, kind of a great world spirit. So we can summarize their viewpoint as, endure life. And again, there are many people who have a similar attitude, though they wouldn't know the names or the philosophies. So these were the two most popular philosophers. What you need to see is that Paul's come to Athens and he's going to engage with these people and talk about what they believe. He's going to challenge that, but he knows where they're at. And we're going to see that we need also to understand our culture and where people are at. And there are many echoes because we still inherit this tradition from Athens that we're unaware of down the centuries. But there were many other people, many other followers of many religions, temple statues. There were new ones arriving all the time. And so the Athenians just loved this. You know, if you want to find out, if you, want, got, got, you know, a lot of people come to the festival because they want to show how great they are at comedy to the fringe. If you're here as a student, you just, you know, you'll be away in August, you'll miss the crowds, but you maybe stay on and come back. But people come because of that. Now, if you wanted to share what you knew, you went to Athens, talked about it. So here they are still searching. So Luke adds this kind of aside. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It appears that their interest was simply that, nothing more. They just loved to be titivated and, and challenged about their thinking, but they didn't do anything about it. Now, this is the first century. Doesn't, does it not sound a lot like the 21st century? Especially in the West, a multi-faith, pluralistic society is not a modern phenomenon. It is as old as ancient Greece. And the interest in novel ideas and religions is one that proliferates. Just go and look in Waterstones at the bookstall section. The, the bit-headed, wacky religions. Well, it's not called that. It's called spirituality or something like that, you know. Or the internet. Or cable television. Because of the explosion of information, everyone has got a voice these days. Now, what should be of real interest to you if you're a Christian? And if you're not, is how does Paul answer these questions? You see, literally, look what they ask. They say, may we, be, may we be permitted to know this new teaching, what it is that you're presenting. Now, the reason they ask this is very interesting, because many religions in Greece were what were called secret or mystery religions. And you only got in on the secret if you were specially initiated, and usually if you paid quite a lot of money to the guy who's initiating you. So they say to Paul, is this, is this some kind of secret? Are we allowed to know? Now, of course, the great thing about the Christian faith is, yes, you are. And you don't need to be specially initiated, and you don't need to pay anything. So, Paul now seizes the opportunity. Here's the second stage. First of all, seeking the truth about God. Here's Paul proclaiming the truth about God, verses 22 to 31. Now, again, there's so much we could say about this, and, and I'm, I'm not going to go on at length. I've already done that so far, but... 
despite how passionately Paul feels about idolatry, how offended he is by it, he does not go on the offensive or become offensive. Instead, he begins, very importantly, by connecting with his hearers. He says two things he's observed about the Athenians. First of all, he says, as I walked around your city, I, I noticed you're interested in many religions. Yes, you were. That's absolutely true. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. The word religious can be translated as superstitious. And behind it is that the Athenians, as most people today, are concerned with the spiritual dimension of life. They believe there's more to life than just the material. And to illustrate that, Paul says, he comments on the many objects of worship he observed when he walked around the city, one of which demonstrated not only they're very religious, but they're also ignorant about the true God. Look what he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, 30,000 statues, every God imaginable. But imagine if you're not really sure about these, you think, hang on, maybe we've missed somebody. Maybe we've missed a God who's really important. And if we don't make an altar to him, he might be really powerful and clever. So, tell you what we'll do. We'll have an altar to the unknown God and cover all the bases. You see, it reveals that there is a God about whom they're ignorant. The unknown God. The one true God. Now Paul says, I'm going to rectify your ignorance. Now notice the balance here between engaging with his hearers and then he doesn't say, well, there's a few things I might share with you that I've worked out for myself. He says, now, you're ignorant. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to proclaim to you clearly what you worship as something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God that Paul proclaims. Very interesting reading what he said. By the way, this is a summary. If you read it through in English or Greek, actually, it takes about two minutes. So unless Paul preached two-minute sermons, in which case we're all in trouble in the pulpit, uh, this is a summary of what he actually said. The essential points. And he probably told Luke about it later. That's how Luke knows about it, because he wasn't there. Now... You need to notice he does not quote directly from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, because they had no authority to the Greeks. But everything he says is drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures by way of evidence. Now, very simply, he highlights four truths about God that they need to know in this situation that are very important. Very quickly, straight through them. First of all, he says, this true God that you don't know, first of all, he's the creator of everything, so he doesn't live in anything we create for him. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hands. Secondly, he says, he's the giver of everything. So he doesn't need anything we give him. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he gives himself, gives all men life and breath and everything else. Then he moves on and he says, he's not the God of some special interest group. He's the God of all nations, so all people should seek him. From one man, this God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He planned it out. And he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this. Why? So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. This unknown God is actually close by. The word reach out is a word used of someone groping around in the dark. It's used in Homer's Odyssey of the one-eyed Cyclops blinded by Odysseus and feeling around in the dark for him. 
One writer, Daryl Buck, comments, Paul describes the Greeks as humans seeking God in their own imperfect way in the hope that they may yet get hold of God. And their goal is attainable because God is so close. And then he engages with his own hearers and he says, he quotes probably from two of their poets, at least one of them anyway, but probably two. A man called Epimenides of, of Crete who said, in him we live and move and have our being. And another man called Aratus from Cilicia, which was Paul's own home province. We are his offspring. Now, his point is not to endorse everything these poets said. He is linking areas of commonality that they share together, showing that groping in the dark, they had some glimmers of understanding, as all people on earth do. And he says, this should make you realise, he's coming back to his point, okay? He's taking him this distance to come back to the idolatry that's upset him and offended God the true God. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made in man's design and skill. And he says, in the past, God overlooked this ignorance. It doesn't mean it wasn't important to him. It means God didn't drop a ton of bricks on you for getting this wrong immediately. But now, he says, the amnesty is over. For the fourth thing he says about God as he comes to the conclusion, he is the judge of the world, so all people should repent. Verse 30 and 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He says, now is the time, God's time, the one true God's time, for you to repent, to change direction, to turn from worshipping idols and to worship the one true God. Because judgment day has been set and the judge for that day has been appointed. And now Paul introduces the person who is the heart of his message. The man God appointed to be the judge of all human beings. Now, I think he saved this to last because he knew this was going to get the really bad reaction from the Athenians, because he knew what they believed. The idea of a final judgment day for all people may have been a controversial subject to them, but to claim that it was entrusted to one man would be incredible. Who would believe such a thing? And who would believe the claims of such a person? And Paul says, well, God has given proof of this person. He's authenticated him as the judge. For he, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, by the man he's appointed, he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now notice in this summary, he doesn't even mention the name of the man. We know already from verse 18, he talked about Jesus and the resurrection in the city. He doesn't say anything about the cross and the death of Jesus, though he can't have a resurrection without a death. No, his point is to focus in on the fact that Jesus has been vindicated, authenticated as the judge of all men, this unique man who has been raised from the dead. You see, the resurrection is the most fundamental of the most fundamental and the greatest importance, as Paul later wrote to the Christians in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ is not raised, then our faith is a waste of time. We're of all people most to be pitied. We're in the dark. We're absolute fools. We may as well eat, drink and be merry like the Athenians did because tomorrow we die. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, this is of the greatest importance. Now, Paul knew this for himself. He spent most of his early life believing that Jesus was a heretic crucified under Pontius Pilate until one day he encountered the risen Jesus to his astonishment. 
on the road to Damascus, a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he realized that Jesus was the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact is that God raised him from the dead, and the proof of this is the truth. Is the proof that this is the truth. But it is a controversial claim. Now we come to the third and final part. We're getting there. We're not there. Thirdly, responding to the truth. Now, Paul's mention of the resurrection is either a sort of clinching argument, or more likely, it causes such a riot among his hearers that he's cut short in, in mid-stride. You see, the Greeks may have disagreed on many issues. The Epicureans and the Stoics may have opposed one another on all sorts of things, but all Greeks and all Athenians were agreed on one fundamental thing. In a play by a famous dramatist, Aeschylus, the founding father of Athens, five centuries before, he wrote a play in which the god Apollo inaugurates the court of the Areopagus, this is their tradition, with these words, when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. Now, no matter how you engage with the culture that you find yourself in, there will always come a fundamental point which will be offensive and will cause disagreement and hostility among those who hear it. You see, the Greeks regarded the body, the physical body, as a prison or a cage from which the soul finally escaped at death. The resurrection of the dead to them was not an attractive proposition. In fact, ridiculous. It is not surprising, therefore, to see among the contrasting responses to Paul's message, we find that some, probably the majority, reacted with ridicule. Some of them sneered. Funny word, sneered, isn't it? Sneered. It actually came home to me. Some of you were at the debate in the Usher Hall, 1,400 people, hearing Christopher Hitchens debate with Christian maths professor John Lennox. And towards the end of the debate, it's very interesting, I sat among the audience with Richard Dawkins just behind me on the aisle with his wife, and Lennox at the end said, I need to tell you that I've been speaking about God, but the God I'm speaking about is the God and Father of Jesus Christ who died, was crucified, and was raised from the dead. And literally, if you were there, you will have heard the sneers. There were three young people in front of me, a guy and two girls, and they'd rip, rubbish, you know, they... Christopher Hitchens said it would only take me five minutes to demolish this argument, which he didn't do, but very interesting how people respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a turn-off. Little has changed, as Paul later wrote to the Christians in Corinth, another Greek city, the message of the cross is foolishness to Greeks, to intellectuals. And the resurrection is unthinkable. However, Paul, Luke does record that not everyone had such doubts. There were some who showed openness, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. However, only a small number responded in faith. Verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, one of their own members, and a woman named Damaris. And as far as we know, no church was established at this point in Athens, and Paul eventually moves on, quite quickly. Maybe he lacks the authority, the endorsement from the council to carry on teaching and preaching in the city, we're not quite sure. Now, let me say something in conclusion. There are enormous things that can be said, and I hope you go away and think about this more deeply, about Paul's visit to Athens. So I also typed into Google, Paul in Athens. 
And you may think this is a long sermon, but when you discover that there are 498,000 hits for Paul in Athens, this is a brief summary of all that they said. Some of what they said. Let me just finish by concentrating on two questions. The first question is to those of you who are followers of Jesus. A question about Paul's mission in Athens. Was it a failure or a success? There is a view uh, that Paul's visit to Athens was a failure, that he moved on because he was discouraged by the small response. So when he reached Corinth, we'll see the next stop. He writes in Corinthians, he came there and he preached in weakness and he simply preached the message of the cross instead of focusing on human wisdom in Athens. Now, I don't think that does justice to the facts. Luke makes no negative comments in his account. And in fact, I think we need people like Paul who engage in the arena uh, of a public debate, of hearing the arguments. I should have read the bulletin more carefully. Is it this week that the debates on on Tuesday? This Tuesday, okay. This Tuesday, go to the debate between David Robertson, minister from Dundee, brilliant guy who's debating with the president of the National Secular Society. Have I got that right? Yes? What time is it on, Tom? Six o'clock Tuesday at... George Square Lecture Theatre. This is an example of engaging in the public arena like the debate that we had before. And more of them are coming up. Lennox is debating with Dawkins in October, reenacting the great debate of a hundred years ago between Wilberforce and Huxley. These are areas, if you're a student, but not just if you're a student, this is not just for kind of high-flying people uh, with brains. We've all got brains. Think and engage. There are all sorts of information on the internet, great apologetic sites. Here's just one. There's a great site named after the woman convert in Athens, Damaris, the Damaris Trust. If you want to make a note of it, I think you just look up Damaris, www.damaris.org. And it's got things about engaging with the films that you're seeing. So you can, you can download that and think, there's a good film out this week, I'll go and watch it, then I'll discuss with my non-Christian friend what it was actually about and, and what they thought of it and how, how, it, how it links in, engages with your hearers, connecting with your hearers. But nothing alters the fact that the gospel challenges every culture at some point or other. And usually, as with the Athenians, at some cherished point. And it kind of changes down the generations. Who created the world is always going to be a controversial subject. The resurrection of Jesus... And this means that some, maybe many, will reject it. The seeming lack of success in Athens, or anywhere else, lies not with the sower or the seed, as Colin shared this morning with the children. It lies with the soil, with the people who receive the message. And that leads to my second question, to some of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. So the question to you is not about Paul's mission, but about Paul's message. And the question is, idols or Jesus? If you are not a follower of Jesus... You are a worshipper of idols. I don't mean that you've got a stone statue in your bedroom, though you may have, or something of gold or silver that you bow down to. I mean, if Jesus Christ is not at the rightful place at the centre of your life in worshipping him, the Son of God, you will worship something else that you believe deserves your attention and will bring you fulfilment. It will be something, or usually someone, And I simply say to you, whoever it is, whatever it is, it cannot bear the weight, the expectation that you hope to find fulfillment in that person or that thing. That is idolatry. 
And it is a serious issue. It's one that caused Paul pain, reflecting the heart of God that feels pain, the Holy Spirit's anguish, when we put other things in the place that only God should have in our lives. And what Paul says in Athens is true to you. Up to this point, if you're still sitting here, God has not judged you as you deserve. He has overlooked your ignorance at this stage. But a day is coming. Now is the day when there is no excuse for ignorance. You cannot plead ignorance. When each of us will stand before the judge. And Jesus himself said, that's me. Words of either an arrogant madman or the son of God. Here's the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Whoever you are, one day you will stand before God in judgment and his Son Jesus Christ is the judge. And you need to repent before that day before you're in the grave or the crematorium. You need to turn away from idols to worship the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Then and only then can you be sure at the final day you will face Him, not as your judge, but as your Savior. You see, He alone is the way to true knowledge. The knowledge of the unknown God, as He Himself said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have no excuse. No longer any ignorance as people in the past may have had about who you are and what you're like. We've sung that Jesus is the perfect picture of the unseen God, reflecting your character in all its fullness, the Word who became flesh. And now you've declared him with power to be your son by raising him from the dead. And one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. Help us to realize the seriousness of idolatry. To turn from idols to worship the one true God and his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, before it is too late. And we ask it in his name and for your glory. Amen.